Ah, and is it good to be back? Rooftop Casual Podcast, your host Ross Medlin, taking a little stroll through Brighton. A little bit choppy today. Seas are, you know, well, for Brighton it's choppy. It's always flat down here. I'm a little bit spoiled myself coming from Cornwall. Uh, Pebble beaches and stuff are not really my thing. But the good thing about Brighton is if you see the sea, you're facing south. Anyway, (laughs) been in Rome. First time back in a while. Ah, Rome was amazing. Went with my girlfriend, saw the Colosseum, went to the Roman Forum. I walked the Appia Antica, which is essentially the first Roman road. And a note to anyone going to Rome soon, please eat a cajo or gajo. It was incredible. Uh, the Rome was the true meaning of the word grandiose. And I could really see myself living there at one point. Uh, but I will be doing a podcast show on my thoughts of Rome soon. Uh, but yeah, on with today's show, we've got Simon Jones, CEO and founder of Helping Rhinos. An extraordinary conversation. Uh, he says that the cost of rhino horn can sometimes go as much as 75, in some cases as much as $100,000 per horn or per kilo. You know, I thank him again for being so open with me and talking at length about this issue. And I really think this is a very comprehensive show for anyone who's uh, getting in or looking to do a little bit of research into rhino conservation. I think this is a good start. But coming up on the show after that, we've got October 24th, we've got Raoul Bretzel, ecological designer and pioneer with the product and organization Capsula Mundi. Uh, This product does definitely have what it takes to redefine our relationship with life and death through nature uh, by turning what comprises our bodies into trees when we die. That's coming up on October 24th, but looking ahead even further, we've got Nicola, Nicolina Maybick, founder of the social enterprise Spare Capacity, which teaches self-care to women who are combating mental illness. So with all that being said, I do hope you enjoy episode number six, Simon Jones, Helping Rhinos. Lovely. Here we are, episode number six of a Rooftop Casual podcast. My name's Ross Medlin, been away for a while, been in Rome. Excited to be back, I hope you are too. Today on the show, I'm honoured to have CEO and founder of the organisation Helping Rhinos, Simon Jones. 2018 has seen the last northern male white rhino, Sudan, die of age-related issues, meaning this subspecies of white rhino in Africa is now extinct. To add to that, it is estimated that only 65 Javan rhinos exist today, and only 100 Sumatran rhinos. Rhinos themselves are a critically endangered species, with less than 30,000 rhinos living in the wild today. Compare that to the start of the 20th century, where over 500,000 rhinos existed globally. Many factors contribute to the decline in numbers of this species, but the biggest coming from an increased demand in poaching. In 2007, just 13 rhinos were lost to poachers. However, that number rose in 2014 to 1,215, 
an increase of just over 9,000% in seven years. The illegal wildlife trade is big business, with its worth thought to be over 17 billion per year. A market-priced rhino horn is worth more than cocaine, heroin or gold. But there is hope. The greater horned rhino has relished in a boost to its population in recent years. From 200 existing in 1990, its population is thought to be now around 3,300. This is due to the good conservation efforts of good people and organisations like Helping Rhinos and my guest today. Simon, welcome and thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Ross. Simon, when you hear those figures, how does it make you feel? Um, I, I mean, it, it's, it fills you with shock and horror um, when you hear, you know, the, the numbers you, you mentioned, you know, the poaching numbers going from 13, 10 years ago to, you know, over a thousand. And we've lost over a thousand per year for five years running now. Uh, and that's just, you know, it's unsustainable. It's unacceptable. Um, you know, the rhinos have no natural predators other than man. Um, so, you know, this is purely down to us, um, that the species that's been around um, for over 50 million years um, is on the brink of extinction. Just by our efforts alone. But Simon, before we start talking about the extent of human involvement in the rhino species, let's talk a little bit about you. Walk me through your journey. Did your love for animals begin as a child? So, yeah, I always, um, yeah, I mean, growing up as a child, our, our house was kind of known as the local zoo with a number of pets that we had there from dogs and cats and rabbits and guinea pigs and tortoises. Um, but, um, I, and I always had this sort of love for, for the wild and particularly African wildlife. And for reasons I struggled to articulate why the rhino was kind of always, always number one, but, um, but it, it kind of was. Um, I remember the first time I went to Africa, they, the usual guide's question is, what do you want to see? And, and I kind of just like, I wanted to see a rhino. And I still remember the very first rhino that, that I saw out in Africa. So, yeah, so kind of somewhere within the genes, it's, it's always been there. Okay. And what was the catalyst that started this organization for you? So, as I said, I always had this, um, I always had this, this sort of love for, for Africa and, and its wildlife. Um, and I was actually doing some some work over here um, in, a, in a big cat breeding centre in Kent. Mm. Um, and my background actually is, you know, I have a corporate background. Um, so I was taking a year out and halfway through that year, um, there was a pretty bad rhino poaching at a reserve in South Africa that I'd spent six weeks at um, a few years previously on a, on a conservation project. Uh, and it kind of just all came together that, um, that, that I felt I could give something back and, and make a difference in, in what was needed to be done to try and save these, these rhinos. Ah. Um, Sorry, go on. I was going to say, and you know, in all honesty, you know, when it started, it was, I didn't necessarily want to start a new organization and I'm sure we'll expand a little bit, but you know, the, the whole education piece was important. So on top of, you know, looking at how we, how we talk and bring the message across to people, not just, not just in Africa and Asia, but, but around the world. Um, so that wasn't really happening over here in the UK. So that's kind of how Helping Rhinos was born with this vision of, of actually being able to make a difference. How bad was this attack on the, uh, on the sanctuary you went and visited? So that, that particular attack, there was three rhinos poached in one night. Mm. One, one hit. Um, one of the, the males was dead um, when we found him in the morning. Um, the other male was still alive um, and actually 
vets out there managed to keep him alive for, for 24 days um, before he eventually succumbed to his injuries. Um, and then there was a female um, who's called Tandy, um, who's now quite a well-known rhino. So she survived. Um, and and actually, you know, may has made a recovery. She still has a big scar on her face where the horn once was. Um, but wow. she's actually gone on and had two calves since. So, so it's a story of hope there of, um, you know, this rhino who, who went through the most horrific attack and has survived. But obviously at the time of setting up helping rhinos, we didn't know she was going to go on and, and survive to that level. It was more that emotional bond of somewhere you've been um, and then this attack and just thinking, do you know what? I can't sit around and just talk about how bad it is. You know, we need to, I need to do something. So you were working for American Express at the time and it says on your, on your website that you worked there for 24 years. And then this attack happened on the sanctuary you visited. After you heard about this attack, did you quit your job on the spot or was it a process over time? It was a process over time. You know, you have to be realistic. Yeah. Um, so, um, and I was still actually had another five months to work at the, at the cat sanctuary, the breeding centre down in Kent. So they were very good and, and allowed me to set up this organisation um, and was kind of running that at the same time as working there. Then I had to go back to American Express and was back there for another... Um, three years part-time because um, obviously there were still bills to pay mm. um, so it was that was that was three days a week paying the bills still working at American Express and then building helping rhinos up from from what was a blank piece of paper to to where we're at now and then so it took three years for me to to make that clean break and be able to 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 do that and uh, yeah now we have a team of people and you know the organization is definitely up and running Okay, and um, what was the initial intention of helping rhinos? As a reader on your website, it has grown exponentially since 2012. Did you start off with smaller intentions than you do today? So it started off with um, intentions of wanting to make a difference. And, you know, and, and I guess with any new organisation or anyone who sets up an organisation, knows that that kind of changes and evolves as, as you go. Um, so I had a, an idea of what I thought we could do. But, but in all honesty, you know, on day one, it was a do-it-yourself website and a, and a Facebook page and a Twitter page, and, and, and let's see what difference we can make. Um, so evolving from there to now we have a team of people we've raised um, in total just about half a million pounds. Oh, great. So our, our revenue's increased by... Um, you know, incomes increased by 150% for the last two years. Um, you'll see that despite being a charity, there's still the business side that's, that sits there and talks about numbers. Um, but I actually think that's very important from a charity going forward. I think, you know, the charitable sector should be run, you know, as, as a business would be run. Um, I always kind of half joke and say that we do run Helping Runners as a business, but our, our shareholders are munching grass on the plains of Africa and not sitting in a boardroom. It's a different um, so approach that's very to much the, it, yeah. the mindset, you know, the, the, that's, the, that's the benefit. You know, we, we operate in that way. Um, we think about it from a customer perspective or a supporter or a donor perspective, um, as, as it would be in, in the world that we're operating in now. Um, but always thinking about, you know, in the same way a business is thinking about its shareholders and how does it deliver maximum value for its shareholders, we're thinking about the rhinos and how do we deliver the maximum we possibly can that impacts the rhinos and their protection out in the natural habitat. Great. And how fast did the conservation aspect of helping rhinos grow from 2012 today? So it's grown pretty quick. I mean, since since leaving since leaving American Express and really focusing full time on this and having you know more you know having a team of people, then that's when things have you know we've really taken off. 
Um, you know, and, and just last year alone, raising quarter of a million pounds, we'll raise around about three hundred and twenty thousand pounds in in two thousand and eighteen. Um, so, so from a conservation perspective, you know, that's some things that we're, you, you know, I'm quite proud of the fact that we've managed to achieve so far is the fact that you know we are. Um, one of the most respected rhino organizations in the UK now. We have, you know, high degrees of credibility with the people we're working with out in the field. Um, so, so, you know, so we're actually, we are making a difference. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about how, how exactly in, in, in a little while. Yes, definitely. And if I'm also correct, you have a, a sister American branch, the organization as well. Uh, how did that begin? So that started, I mean, obviously, you know, from a fundraising perspective, the Amer- America is a, is a big market in terms of fundraising. Um, mm. And so we, we set up a branch in the US once we got the UK established to, to make life easier for our, our friends in America to, to donate their dollars to. I um, mean, the same way we have registered charities over here and it's much easier for people and gives them a degree of confidence if they're donating to a registered charity. The same is true in America. So um, we were fortunate enough to find somebody who was very passionate about conservation um, and wanted to get involved with rhinos in some way. Um, and um, so James is his name. And then he, so he, we've been working with him in terms of getting that set up and, and, and running as well. Um, so, again, something else to be very proud of that, that you know, we have two, two branches of helping rhinos that's working to, to support our, our field work. Does it exist on its own in terms of being a charity? No, no, it's, no. So it's it, we're a global organisation. So we, I sit on the board of the US branch. Um, so it, you know, it, we have, um, if you like, it's headquartered here in the UK. But okay. We very much work together. It's a, it is a separate entity because it's registered in the US. It has to have a separate board because that's the the nature of of how it has how we have to operate. Um, but we we very much you know operationally work as a as a one global team. Uh, a question I'm interested in asking you, but six years on from starting helping rhinos, uh, when you look back at your your previous work in American Express, how do you feel about your life's work now and in, and the impact you're having? I, I mean, it, it it's a whole different ballgame when you're you're working um, you know for for what is your passion. Um, I'm, I'm sure people will understand that bits of plastic was never really a great life passion. <laughs> um, but, but um, you know, and, and actually, I, you know, I, I still in contact with my old bosses at American Express, and I, I often say to them that I've um, never worked so hard in my life as I do now. Um, you know, we, we, weekends and, and time off is, a, is definitely a thing of the past. Um, but that's kind of okay because you, you're passionate about what you're doing and you know that you're delivering something good um, and making a difference, a positive difference um, to the world that we live in. Yeah, the conservation efforts of rhinos doesn't stop at the weekend, I guess. It definitely, it definitely doesn't. <laughs> and um, as CEO and founder of Helping Rhinos, what does your day-to-day job look like? It must look different from the uh, like a quote-unquote normal CEO's job. Yes, it does. Um, and it can range from anything, from, from writing strategic and approaches and trying to, to find some people, you know, donors to support us um, with the funding that we need to do the job, um, to sometimes packing envelopes um, and, and sending stuff out in the mail. You know, when you have a small team, and, and I think CEO of many, any charities will tell you, you know, it's, it's kind of all hands to the pump. 
Um, so, and the days days are very varied and very different. You know, I can have some days where typically you'll get up at sort of six o'clock and, and start straight away. Uh, and you can have a day on the computer and responding to emails and calls. Um, you know, you can have meetings in London. So sometimes, you know, I'll be in London the whole day. Um, and then there's a few times, few times when um, when obviously I, I'm then out travelling to see the projects in the field, which is is obviously in, in in the nicest part of the job because you know out there reminding yourself why you're doing it and seeing these these you know endangered animals and understanding the, the help that they need from us. Must be the most important aspect of the job as well to remind you remind yourself why you're doing it. Go over there consistently, I suppose. Exactly. You have a, you know, it's, it's getting the balance right. You know, I'd love to be out there all the time, of course. You know, that, mm. that's, the, that's the passion. Um, but, but the reality is I'm of much greater use to the rhinos doing what I'm doing over here, um, generating the funding that allows the experts in the field to, to do what they're doing. I agree. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, you go out there, you just remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing. And how often would, would you go over to the kind of conservation projects? Um, we go, I go out... Um, around for, for maybe a week to two weeks, probably a couple of weeks on average, um, about twice a year. And it's really very much to make to, to ensure we're, we're maintaining that credibility with our partners out in the field, um, to ensure that we are, are up to date and we know what's going on. You know, we, be able, we need to talk, be able to talk to our um, supporter and donor base over here from, uh, you know, and, and talk with credibility that we, we understand what's going on within the, the area that we're operating in. Um, and of course, you know, we're, we're working in, in Africa and, and to a certain extent, you know, Asia. So we have to ensure that the money that we raise and sending out is actually being spent in the correct way. OK, so now let's come on to talk about the poaching itself and the other factors that are having a detrimental effect on the rhino population. Uh, and it says on your website there are five species of rhino that still survive in the world today. Two species come from Africa and three from Asia, but all of them have one thing in common – their very existence is under threat, thanks mainly to a massive increase in poaching. Uh, so my question to you is, why has there been such a rise in the instances of poaching rhinos, and what is the demand for? Okay, so, so let me take that in reverse order, if you like. So the demand is for the horn um, and, and for nothing else. So, so the rhino horn is being used traditionally in, in traditional Asian medicines, um, and it's believed to have cures anything from... Um, from cancer to a common cold to a hangover. Um, you know, there was lots of talk around rhino horn being used um, as a virility drug. Um, and actually, that's, that's a bit of a Western media myth, in, in all honesty, that mm. it's, it's, it's never really been prescribed and, and used for that. You, know, you hear lots of people saying it gets used for other things since the dawn of Viagra. But again, a little bit of a, of a Western media story that kind of hit the headlines and has been picked up as being, being fact. Right. Um, so, and, and, you know, and the, the really frustrating thing I think about it, Ross, is that um, the, the rhino horn is, is made of keratin. So it's not, it's not a bone, it's, it's compressed hair, um, exactly the same as our hair and our fingernails. So, you know, in terms of curing, curing your cancer, you've got as much chance really of curing cancer of taking some rhino horn as you have of biting your fingernails. So it's a complete um, myth, then. So, so that that's really frustrating, it, it, you know. And it, it's illegal to, to trade rhino horn. So, you know, what happens is it all happens on the black market, um, and and on the black market, the cost of rhino horn to, to go and buy is is now as high as seventy five 
in some cases even a hundred thousand dollars per kilogram which which i think as you said earlier makes it um, more expensive than gold and platinum and cocaine and heroin even um, which for something that's nothing more than compressed hair is is just you know is beyond belief to be honest. <laughs> it's absurd it's, it's... Uh, it, it, exactly i mean completely absurd and, and then because of that what you find now is you know you mentioned earlier the illegal wildlife trade um, which is in the top four of the illicit trades um, in the in the world, you know, along with arms and drugs and human trafficking, uh, and and what you know what, what what we see now is that you know it's becoming a status symbol because it's you know it, it's I use the analogy of a businessman over here would maybe offer someone a lift in his Ferrari, not necessarily because he wants to give you a lift in his Ferrari, he just wants you to know he's got a Ferrari. And the same thing in in Asia and the, and the two main markets are Vietnam and China. And what happens is, is, you know, they'll offer you, would you like some ground rhino horn in your glass of wine because it'll stop your hangover or whatever. So they just grind down the horn and put it in drinks and smoothies and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah well, yes, exactly. They, or they can take it, you know, some, it, it can be snorted the same as a drug. You know, there's various different ways um, that, that people take it. Um, but, but, yeah, and, you know, and, and as we say, completely, completely useless. You know, there have been many... Many Western um, scientific tests done on Bionhorn to prove that um, it doesn't work. Um, I, I think there's something out there that says, you know, if you took a whole huge Rhinohorn in made it into a liquid form and injected it directly into your blood veins, it may do something um, in terms of helping with a cure, you know, but, but, but you, but you wouldn't be able to cope with that anyway. So. Um, but, but, you know, we have to recognize the fact that, you know, Asian medicine, I mean, even over here, you, you, we see, you know, various different Asian medicine um, outlets in the high street. Um, and it's thousands of years of belief. So we need to recognize and understand that, you know, as much as we're saying it has no scientific and no medical benefit whatsoever. There's people in Asia who will tell you that they believe that it does. Um, so, you know, we've got to work with that and try and change um, those attitudes and those beliefs. My next question to you is, I know it's a gruesome one, um, but it's an important one for myself and the listeners at home to get a grasp on. But what are these animals subjected to during these poaching attacks? Um, it, it's horrendous, um, to be honest. So, you know, and, and it can vary as well. Um, you know, it, it, in, a, in a way... The kindest thing, if it's going to happen, is if the, the poacher manages to get a clean shot and kills kills the animal outright. Um, but but unfortunately, that doesn't happen. You know, I've seen some horrendous things, and probably too, don't want to go into too much detail. But you know, animals being alive, I told the story of Tandy who survived. Um, so that was actually they managed to get hold of some the the, the tranquilizer, so like anaesthetic, if you like. Mm. Um, and so the animal's down, and then you know they take a machete, which is like a, you know, a great big, um, a great big blade, and they'll and they'll just hack away and chop off. But you know because it's worth so much, so much, and the value is so great that they'll go down into the roots to get every last little bit of that of that horn that they can. You know, and you see many examples where the rhino would just literally just bleed to death because of the the hole in, in that's left in their face. Um, so yeah, I've seen pictures where vets trying to treat survivors can get their whole arm into the where the horn used to be. You know, it's, it, it's horrendous. That's uh, horrible. Um, 
other than money, what do you think drives people to commit these uh, atrocities? It, it is greed. Um, so it is money. You know, we talk a lot about the poachers themselves, and of course, you know, the poachers are just one chain. So there's a whole. You know, it starts with a syndicate. And I mentioned that the, the, you know, the illegal wildlife trade and and those sort of gangs that are, are running that, and those cartels that are that are running it. Um, and that's exactly what happens. You know, you've got the big money men. You know, who are, you know, corruption is rife, unfortunately, on both sides of the of the chain. Um, so we know there's a lot of corruption, um, and you know we have to remember that, that a lot of these poachers are being paid what you know can be several years of salary equivalent to to go and uh, and take the risks of of poaching a rhino and the horn. So they will take that because they see it as a as a risk worth taking. Um, because unfortunately, it, it 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 has the potential and opportunity to set them up for maybe for the rest of their lives and with their family as well. Um, so that's an area that we really have to work on um, in terms of changing that and, you know, and making these the, the poachers being able to benefit from wildlife in some other way. It's a shame that there's a systemic problem in the economies of these countries that are kind of essentially the incentive to drive people to do this. Um, but even then... Um, I bet there's people who, you know, yes, are at those horrible crossroads, you know, between a, a, a big payout and, and trying to earn a living some other way. But even then, there's people in those situations that I believe wouldn't do these atrocities. I'm just wondering, how can some people have that disconnect to another suffering? But I think you can say the same, you know, if you think about how we could relate it here, you know, there's people who, who know good and bad and there's people who get sucked into it. Um, and, and there's people that, that are strong enough to say, no, yes, you know, it could set me up for life, but, but it's wrong and therefore I'll stand up for that. You know, we see the same thing over here. You can look at drug dealers over here. You know, people know it's bad, um, but, but some people don't care that, you know, who gets hurt by selling whatever drugs and taking whatever drugs. They're just interested in, in the money that comes out and that they make on the back of it. There's other people, I'd like to think the majority of people who have a sense of right and wrong and wouldn't go down that road. The same principle if you, is, is, is out there with these poachers. You know, yes, of course, there are some people who, who, who don't succumb to that. Um, but, but there are unfortunately quite a lot in that, that level of poverty that do. And for us to solve the problem, yes, we've got to look at the poachers, but actually we've got to look as we go further up the train, sort of the middlemen and the head of the, the, head of the syndicates. Because unfortunately, we live in, in a world with such a huge poverty within the countries we're talking about that you know for every every poacher that's that is lost there'll be 10 waiting to take his place Mm. yeah um okay so but away from these kind of poaching attacks and in your experience simon what's the nature of this animal like i watched a a video of you on your website and you're in one of your partner orphanages um which we'll come on to later but you sat with a rhino called wakozi um, and I was surprised you were able to get so close. You're less than a meter away, and this uh, this beautiful animal is just sunning itself in uh, in the garden. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, what's the nature of this animal like in the wild? So, so it depends. I mean, so in Africa, there's the two species: there's the black and the white rhino. The white rhino is known to be a, a lot more docile. You certainly wouldn't go up to a white rhino in, in as in the film that you you just described with mm. McCausey. Um, uh, and, and in fact, with McCausey now, even 
I think that was filmed even a year ago, only a year ago, but you certainly wouldn't get that close to her now. Uh, um, right. She's another year older and much bigger. And, and, and actually what happens is, you know, we, we actually have to withdraw that human contact with the orphans. And I know we'll talk about that a bit more because we have to, we, and we're looking to rewild them. So, you know, they need that human contact to replace their mum to begin with. But then we have, when the time is right, we have to pull away. Um, so, so that's that's quite that's not normal what you see there. That's because of the situation of, of how okay. they've had to hand reared. Typically, a, a, a white rhino is is more docile, but you wouldn't a, a wild rhino. You certainly wouldn't go up to. You know, it does have that big horn on the end of its nose that's going to do you a lot of damage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and black rhinos are, are more solitary and certainly a lot more aggressive. And are black charged by a black rhino out in the field? It's um, you definitely don't want to to get on their back on their wrong side. <laughs> How fast are these animals then? So they can run up to thirty miles an hour. Oh my god! <laughs> and um, what's You're their? You're not going to outrun them. <laughs> <laughs> what's their? What's their closest relative in terms of the animal kingdom? So they, really, it's the horse. Um, the horse and, and an animal called a tapir, which which I guess some some listeners may be familiar with. Um, but but the one we're most familiar with, of course, is is the horse. Oh, that surprises me. I thought it would have been uh, the hippo or something like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, lots of people will think that. They think it's because of their size and because they all come from Africa. And lots of people think they must be related closely to elephants as well. Again, because of their size. But um, but but no. Um, it, as I say, it's the horse and the tapir. They're their closest living relatives. And you say this is a prehistoric animal, essentially. It's been living here, living on this planet for millions and millions of years. How do you think it survived so long, and why is it so durable? Um, well, I guess, they, you know, they, they, they've adapted, you know, when I said they've been around for 50 million years, that's the, the sort of the, the, the genre of rhinoceros, but, um, but they've not always looked like they do now. You, know, you can go back and, and see pictures of what rhinoceros looked like, you know, and there's been many different species. You know, at one time they were the most numerous species of mammal on, on this planet um, in terms of, of different, you know, the different species. And, you know, we, we whittled that down, unfortunately, to five. Um, but you know they're fairly they're fairly if you look at how they've adapted you know there's lots of suits so within Asia there's the three species and you take the Sumatran rhino that live live in the rainforest you know there's a train of thought that says despite the fact that they're living there they're actually more designed for open plains but they've had to adapt to live in the rainforest as the human population has grown and, and encroached a lot on on their habitat so they're obviously fairly adaptable and able to evolve into different ways. That's an interesting point, and one I want to come on to. There are other factors um, impacting on this species. Is the habitat the next major player in this kind of field, yeah. essentially? Poaching and loss of habitat are, are definitely the two main threats to to the future of the rhino on this planet. Um, you know, um, so you know, there's a lot of focus, and rightly so, on on the poaching threat. But you know, we must also be very mindful of of loss of habitat. Um, uh, so, you know, to give you an example, 80% of Africa's rhinos are found in South Africa. Um, so that, 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 because of that population that's there, you know, that's the epicenter of the poaching crisis. But we do a lot of work in Kenya as well. And the, the biggest threat to, Ken, to the rhinos in Kenya isn't so much the poaching as, as lack of habitat. And, you know, the human, popu- the human population growth, particularly in Africa, um, by 2100 is, you know, is incredible. Um, and so we have to find new ways to, to live and coexist with wildlife um, if we're, if we're to, to have a future for them.
And how much of an impact would um, a society living very close to rhinos have on either side of the species? So, you know, so, so the rhinos can be a dangerous animal, so people are scared of them, you know, mm. and you need to look, I guess, beyond the rhino and look at wildlife as a whole. So it's, it's popular, you know, we work with a, a partner in Kenya called Old, Old Pegeta Conservancy, you know, who's really is, is taken up um, a real proactive model to how you live um, with humans and, and wildlife sort of living alongside each other, um, as opposed to perhaps the more traditional conservation approach of fenced in areas where you completely, you know, humans must not go and this is just for wildlife. You know, that's that's not sustainable and the wildlife will always lose with the population growth. So we have to find a way where we can coexist. Um, and, and so that's where a lot of our, our focus is on, is looking at models that are working and how do we replicate those. You see that in so much of... Um... Uh, in, in terms of the world at the moment, there's uh, problems with essentially bears losing most of their habitat in America as well. Uh, you're seeing this is a global issue at the moment. Now, it really is. You know, as I said, you know, you look at the forecasted population growth um, over the next 80 years and, it, and it's frightening, to be honest. You know? um, so we have to, you know, and as I, you know, unfortunately, if you put it down to a fight between who's going to win in terms of the wildlife or the, or the human population in terms of securing land to survive, the humans are going to 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 win that battle every time. Yeah. Um, so so you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of train of thought out there that will fight against that and say, you know, we must stop it. And the reality is we're not going to stop that human population growth as much as we realize that that's the problem and as much as we'd like to, the reality is we're not really going to be able to stop that. So so how do we work with it rather than just battle and fight against it? Um, is that one of the major things you're looking at in terms of helping rhinos? Is that um, one of the major focuses? In terms of the conservation approach generally, absolutely. So, you know, we, we talk a lot around. So we have three key operating principles, which is collaborate, empower and sustain. And, you know, and that works across everything. So if you're talking about out in the field, you know, how do we how do we collaborate with the local communities? How do we empower them to to be a part of wildlife conservation? Unfortunately, those you, know, you mentioned about the communities that surround the areas that the rhino is still living in, you know, it, it, it's unfortunately a, a case, particularly in places like South Africa, where the wildlife is seen as the, the rich white man's plaything that brings no benefit to those local communities. Um, and we have to change that mindset and we have to change that approach so that those communities are benefiting from that wildlife being there generally, whether that's through ecotourism or through other, other measures. And if they need, if they can benefit as a, as a community for the, from the revenue that's generated from, from wildlife being there, then we'll start to get them on board and they'll start to have more responsibility for protecting that wildlife. Um, coming on to something I was very surprised to hear even was a debate, and it says on your website, uh, the most polarising topic in rhino conservation today is whether the trade of rhino horn should be legalised. But what is the argument for a pro-trade in rhino horn? Okay, so, so uh, and you're absolutely right, it is indeed the most polarising debate um, in, in, uh, in, in rhino conservation. Um, so, as I said, it, it's illegal to trade internationally um, any part of a, a, a rhino a rhino's horn. Um, so, the, the argument that the people who are for a legal trade will put you is, is a little bit like, you know, 
if you if you legalize a demand, you can control the demand. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, rhino horn is like um, our fingernails and our hair. And just like if you cut your hair and your fingernails, um, and you know, to a certain point, it will grow back. And a rhino horn is exactly the same. If you chop it off to a certain level, it will grow back, and there's about a four-year growth cycle. Um, so. Their argument is rather than kill the rhino, you can effectively farm rhinos. Um, you can chop their horns off every couple of years, um, and that can generate um, a, a fulfilling the demand that's there for rhino horn in Asia. So their argument is rather than rather than battling against it, um, let's let's see if we can fulfill the demand by by farming rhinos and, and chopping their horns off. Okay, and the flip side to this debate would be the no-trade argument of it. And then what would the no-trade argument be? So, so the counter-argument is that we don't actually know what the demand for, for rhino horn is. So, you know, so it's all very well to say you can farm rhinos and that creates a, and that creates a, a supply that can fulfill that, that chain, if you like. Um, but... But could we even produce enough rhino horn, even by farming rhinos, um, to satisfy the demand? Um, the argument is that actually we, we probably can't. Um, and that's certainly the argument that the people who are against the trade would, would put against those people who say who are all for farming rhinos. Um, you know, so um, so if we can't, if we can't, we don't even know what the demand is. You know, in it's it's likely that just because we're losing over a thousand rhinos a year to poaching, that's that's not satisfying what a demand would be if you legalise a trade. If you legalise it, there's people out there who do have a sense of right and wrong, who um, who might say, well, actually, I want to use rhino horn, but I don't today because I I'm afraid of getting caught, or I just know that it's illegal and I don't want to break the law. Suddenly, so, these people, you're opening up that market to them. And um, so. So, so, I, so, you know, so can we even can we even supply the demand? The, the no side would say we probably can't. Um, and then there's the moral approach that says, you know, we're going to sell you something that you're going to take to give to your mum to cure cancer, um, for as an example. But we know that it won't cure cancer. So how can we actually live with ourselves selling you something to cure something that we we know it isn't actually going to work? I agree. And, and if you don't know the demand at the start, who's to say the demand wouldn't grow exponentially in the la- next couple of years as well if you did legalise it? Um, exactly. And I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. And where do you personally stand on this debate? Okay, so I, 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 I think that a legal trade would, would not work and would actually put the rhinos in, in a worse position than, where, than what we're at now. Um, you know, a lot of people who, who we work with, you know, I've had people saying we should give it a go because nothing's working today. And I don't think we can take the risk of saying let's give it a go because nothing else is working. You know, there needs to be proper research done. As much as I don't like the idea of a trade in rhino horn, if, if someone could prove to me that it would save the species of rhino, then I would reluctantly get behind it because all I want to do is save the species of rhino. Um, but I've seen no evidence, and believe me, I've done a lot of research into it. I've seen no evidence that, that says that actually it it will work. And in fact, I've probably seen more evidence, to my mind, that says it won't work. So, for that reason, um, as an organisation, we are a, a, a not on the side of a trade of a legal trade in in Rhino Horn. The one thing I will say is that 
as I said earlier, it's a polarizing debate. And whether you're for it or you're against it, unfortunately, there's very little common ground. I see too many examples of people who are both actually have the same goal, ultimately, of wanting to save the species of rhino fighting within themselves. And actually, we need to overcome that. And we need to accept the fact that we have a difference of opinion. And we need to find a way to work together to beat the real enemies, which are the poaching, poachers and the poaching syndicates. Yeah, I agree. And hearing you today, I side firmly with the no trade part of this debate. Um, I wouldn't like to see another wild animal um, only exist due to its uh, factor of being a commodity to the world. But coming on to something else, Simon, I'm not sure whether you've heard of this or not, um, but when doing a bit of research online, I came across a new story on Business Insider UK um, of a new Seattle-based biotech startup called Pembian. Um, <coughs> sorry. Um, which it says on its website is trying to solve the rhino poaching crisis with a 3D printer. The idea is to biofabricate rhino horns out of keratin using 3D printing to undercut the rhino horn market. Uh, the horns are genetically identical to the real ones on a micro and macroscopic level, apparently. And its CEO told Business Insider that they would look and feel so real that distinguishing between the natural ones would be and the fake ones would be impossible. Essentially, they're saying um, that the aim would be um, that people wouldn't know whether they're buying the real ones or fake ones, um, lowering the value of a rhino horn and flooding the market, essentially. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are to that idea. Um, okay, so I, I, this this has been talked around in from you know a number of different companies for for a number of years now, um, and it's a little bit like the, the trade debate. So, so you you have you have to understand what's driving the, the use of rhino horn in the first place, you know, and you have to go and talk to the people out in the field. And it isn't just replicating exactly scientifically by a three D printer what a, you know the keratin of a, of a rhino horn wouldn't necessarily meet them you know so, so rightly or wrongly that a lot of the people who use the, the horn but believe that what creates some of it is that when a rhino is eating the grass off of its natural habitat that some of that feeds into the horn so they're getting some goodness from the earth as, in there as well um you know so if you but it, and it's all very well to say you wouldn't know which whether it's real horn or whether it's 3d printed horn but but if there's no open market for horn it's all going to be have to be under the counter and black market. Or, or, or obviously you are going to know because if you're selling it legally, you can only sell legally the fake horn, if you like. <laughs> That's a very good point. They would actually have to um, find black market trades <laughs> to get their product yeah, in to it, actually make it work. Exactly. So, do, do you know what I mean? Do, you know, I would never knock people for coming up with ideas and, you know, and, and, and again, having done a, a fair bit of research onto it, I, I think I, I can't see a situation because what you're doing is you're creating a, a demand again for it. You know, you, we've got to try and the only long term solution is to try and close down that demand. Um, you know, and I've heard and some people will say, you know, you, you can't do that. It's been there for thousands of years. But if we try and reduce that demand significantly, if, if you like, and then we have to get get that manageable, and and even a fake horn is going to, to increase demand because people are going to think about it. And say, oh, actually, yeah, that, that's good. I'll go and I'll go and take some of that. But but I guarantee that people will want wild rhino horn, you know. And and just because you necessarily can't tell the difference, people will still sell it as I'm selling you wild rhino horn because people are greedy and they will make much more money out of their poached rhino horn that they're going to take in. 
Hey guys, if you're enjoying this podcast, you can find us on all the major social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at A Rooftop Casual. You can also go to our website, arooftopcasual.com, where you can join the mailing list to get exclusive monthly content. Now back to the show. Let's come on to talk about Helping Rise itself. And if I may, um, I'd like to read out your vision and mission statement. And it says, Helping Rhinos is here to create local and global partnerships, sustainable operating models and international education programs that deliver tangible results in rhino protection, habitat preservation, a reduction in illegal wildlife trade and the empowerment of local communities, ensuring the long-term survival of the rhino and other endangered wildlife in their natural habitat. And you say this can be built around seven, a seven saviour platform. Um, Simon, can you explain what the seven saviours of the rhino population are? Sure, um, absolutely. Um, so what we've identified, and you know, everything we've spoken about so far has been quite negative and doom and gloom, but actually, you know, there is hope out there. Um, you know, we have to have a belief, and we do have a belief that we can turn it around. And so what we've looked at is, uh, how, as, a, as a strategic approach, how do we focus on making the impact where we need to make an impact? So, as you say, we've come up with our, our seven seven saviors of rhino. In all honesty, I'd like to think you could replace the word rhino with any species or even planet Earth on the end. Mm. I think the concept, or we believe the concept, still ring, would ring true. So, the first of our saviors that we look at is habitat. Mm-hmm. So, how do we how do we protect our habitat how do we create a habitat as we spoke about earlier that that is good for wildlife and and allows wildlife to thrive alongside and local communities and we're looking at the the next one we look at is protection so we spoke about this just now but you know we have to create an an environment where we can protect our wildlife from from some of those threats and, and poaching the next one is community so how do we work and empower those local communities to to work alongside us and to and to become part of a team as opposed to to fighting against each other um education is obviously important and that's education um, internationally it's education in the demand countries and i mentioned vietnam and china earlier um, um and of course education in the in what we call the range state so where the countries where rhinos are still living so those communities surrounding where where rhinos are living today um the fifth the fifth savior we're talking about is research so doing a you know research into um, it could be scientific research. So we spoke, you mentioned um, Sudan, the last male northern white rhino earlier, um, and only the, the two females still exist. So we know there's a lot of scientific research being done in terms of an IVF process um, and how you could use that to recreate um, and, and repopulate and restock a, a northern white rhino in the future. Um, but, but, you know, research in terms of understanding beliefs as well and what you know why are people using rhino horn what's driving people to turn to poaching versus those that don't poaching so research is uh, as our fifth savior the sixth one is political advocacy um, i mentioned corruption earlier there's a you know a lot of corruption unfortunately on both sides um we need to get the politicians involved and um, there's a very famous rhino conservationist who unfortunately passed away just over a year ago, called Dr. Ian Player. Mm. And he's actually, um, back in the last poaching crisis, he was actually um, really the person who came up with a solution to, 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 
to stop the poaching crisis that, that we got on top of and, and bring rhinos back from the brink previously. Um, you know, he, his, one of his last words that he said in his last public speech was, if you want to really make a difference, get to know a politician. Um, yeah, and I would talk about, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, if you can have um, a legislation that was an enforceable, that, that, you know, that on both sides, then, you know, you could overcome the problem or at least get the problem to a, a manageable level kind of overnight. Um, so we're not there yet, unfortunately, but we still have to be working at that political level um, from all sides. So they're the first six of, of our seven series, and they're the key ones that's out in the field, if you like. You know, we need to work on all of those, and you can work. It's unrealistic to say that one, one group or one entity would work on all of those areas at the same time. Um, so you've got different people working on different areas. And then underpinning all of those is our seventh um, saviour, which is funding. So, so none of the other six I mentioned, the habitat protection, community, education, research, political advocacy, none of that can happen without funding. Um, so generating that funding to allow that to happen is critical. Um, and that's really the role, one of the key roles that we at Helping Rhinos as an international um, charity or, or NGO plays is generating the funding that allows us to support the, the, our projects out in the field. Of those seven, I know it's a very comprehensive approach, but to you, which is the most important factor? Um, it, it, you know, it, it's, I wouldn't like to say there was one that was more important than mm. the other. The reason we've come up with those seven, I mean, you could argue because of what I just said, that funding is because none of the others can happen without funding. Yeah. So if you say that the funding's the most important bit, and then you look at the other six as to which one's, which one's the most important, it would be wrong to say this one is more important because actually, you know, the reason we've identified it is all of these need to happen to create a holistic, successful approach. So let's come on to, let's break down a few of those seven at the moment. And you've got an educational program called Rhinocation, which is for key stage one and two. Um, is this program being delivered globally? So, so yeah, so... As I mentioned, I think at the, at the very start, you know, education was actually a key part of why helping rhinos even even exists today. So, um, and we have we do have a um, a lady on board now who is is looking after. She's an ex primary school teacher and is looking after what we're producing from an education material. So, and our rhinocation project takes many different different levels. So that key stage one, key stage two is being rolled out essentially to schools, um, predominantly in the UK at the moment. Mm. Um, and it's all been written with a view to what's the current um, curriculum and an understanding of what teachers need to, in terms of material to teach their classes. What we have got is those booklets, and we're still trying to find the funding to get them translated into different languages. So we've taken them out, and they're being used in English um, in some um, of the schools in Africa that we have outreach projects in. So they're being used. Um, you'll actually see pictures on our website of some children in Somalia actually using the booklets as well. Oh, that's so great. It is very much an international an international project. As working alongside that, we have a separate curriculum that's aimed more at higher education at, um, at, any, at the US um, and within their curriculum. And that is... That's also proven to be relatively successful. So while there's nothing confirmed, the US is believed to be the, the biggest importer and user of rhino horn after Vietnam and China. I did not know that. 
to, and, and not many people do. And as I said, there's nothing official. It's kind of what's believed to be. And a lot of that really is because of the, um, you know, the large Asian population that, that resides in the, in the United States, and particularly on the West Coast, which is actually where our U.S. office is based. Um, so, and, and the guy who runs our U.S. office also, you know, has an education background and, and a conservation background. It's a perfectly placed to pull that together. So, so we're excited that we're able to target the Asian population out out in the U.S. Um, and you'll also see that we've been sending children from schools out here, um, not not funded by the charity. I have to say because it wouldn't be the best use of our money, but, but organising trips for them to go out and experience seeing some of these wildlife and rhinos out in the wild, so they can bring that message home. Um, and in fact, one of the, the proudest moments from an education perspective was when one of the students we sent out last year, and they, what they did was they spent a week on a on a rhino orphanage understanding what it takes for it's it's a different orphanage to the one we spoke about earlier but understanding what it takes to care for for rhino orphans and then they spent a week on a on a, on a much larger game reserve understanding how you manage true wild populations of wildlife um, and one student said to me when i saw her six months afterwards that 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 trip changed her out, whole outlook on life and in fact changed her as a person, she came back feeling she was a much different, better, stronger person and, and changed her, her outlook, what she wanted to do with her life. And, and you think, well, that, that's why education is so important, because some stage we're going to have to hand all of this conservation work over to the next generation. So, um, so that for me is, is critically important. That's amazing. So I can take it as the response to Rhino Cation and the other educational programs you've, um, you've been delivering, uh, the response has been unanimously amazing. Or positive. Yeah, it's been very, very positive. And I said the the, the idea of rhinocation is it's uh, you know there's so many different elements to it because you will be you know if you try and just produce one element, it's not going to fit everywhere, and you're kind of limiting where you get the message across. But by introducing whether it's trips to Africa, whether it's classroom booklets, um, whether it's interactive coloring material, then that kind of all works and you know gives gives the educators. Uh, uh, the opportunities to say, well, actually, I'll take this because it fits and it makes my life easier because I can deliver this message out there. We know we're getting the message out there then. It says on your website, Simon, that convincing communities that an animal is worth more alive that alive to them than it is dead, sorry, is one of the most important elements of this issue. Um, how hard has it been to convince the communities um, near the rhinos, that live near the rhinos, um, of this, uh, of their worth? So, so the, unfortunately, the, the harsh reality is that um, when you, when a rhino horn is worth as much as it is, it, it's we have no way of making the rhino worth more alive than it is dead. Um, when you look at it as one individual, so then we must take a, a wider holistic approach that I touched on a little bit earlier, and looking at wildlife conservation generally, and saying that actually, you know, how do how do we make wildlife conservation, including the rhinos, and then including the elephants and the leopards and the lions and, and everything else, to to so that the local community so it brings greater value to the local communities. So they need to see the rhino as part of a bigger picture. So in other words, tourists are going to come to a, a reserve to see the wildlife, but the key part of that is because they want to come and see rhinos as well as as I said, the elephants and the other species. Um, so, so by keeping the rhinos alive, we'll actually bring more revenue that's, that can go to the village. The problem with the model today is not much of the ecotourism, 
revenue finds its way back into that those local communities. Um, so that's something that we're working with our, our partners out in the field as to how we how we can look to change that going forward, hmm. um, and and driving that greater greater benefit to communities from holistically wildlife being there. So is it more of a fairer trade in ecotourism? Is that what you're saying? It, it's it, yeah, it's not so much a fairer trade as much as engaging the communities and empowering the communities to be a part of it. Um, you know, and 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 unfortunately, that may mean that, that some reserves are going to need to give away some of their profits that, that they'd be making as a business and generating it back into it. You know, and again, I mentioned old Pejeta in Kenya. Mm. You know, they have a great model where thirty um, percent of all of their, their profits is is has to go back into community projects. You know, and I've been out there to a, two two or three different schools that's been built. Um, because of purely from funding from the conservancy. Um, they've put up dispensaries or small little medical centers, if you like, that makes it much more achievable for the communities to get to. So, it's, um, you know, we, they've set up new businesses in setting up you know, education centers so that people can understand how they can run their own small-scale business that can generate a revenue for them. Um, the key thing to use a perhaps a horrid corporate term is linking and labeling it so the local communities need to understand that there's some indirect benefit to them from the wildlife and the conservancy being there because it's been able to fund these schools these dispensaries the, the, the setup of new businesses and then you're starting to really engage those communities you're empowering them to to generate revenue from their own but but making them see that they can only do that because the conservancy is there in the first place yeah and if, so if, and if you take that sorry no, sorry, go. Take that model that, you know, they employ around about a thousand people from the, the local community, but but in terms of the number of people that benefit from the conservancy being there, then there's about fifty thousand people that are benefiting indirectly from the conservancy being there, and that that's the positive message that we've seen is working, um, and we have to understand and how do we take that and replicate it and, and push it out elsewhere. Yeah, I agree. If you're making, if you're creating a more sustainable economy uh, through this ecotourism as well, you're 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 providing less incentive for this uh, for the poaching, essentially. Um, but let's yeah. come on to some of the other projects you're involved in, and most famously, um, there's the Black Mumbas. And if I could, I'd like to read out some information pertaining to them. Um, they are a paramilitary trained group of young African women that hope to address the social and moral decay that is product of rhino poaching within their communities. They're concerned for their children's sakes that as the false economy has brought loose morals and narcotics to the community, uh, and they are deployed in five different areas covering 50,000 hectares. Uh, this is amazing, but what does the day-to-day -day work of a black mamba involve? Um... It involves a, a lot of walking. So they start, um, depending what time of year, they'll start either be half five, six o'clock, and, and they'll walk up to 20 kilometers a day, mm. um, checking fences. So, you know, checking the fence lines that, that, that obviously are keeping the, the wildlife um, within the conservancy, and they're looking for signs of where the fence may have been cut. They're looking for signs of insurgents where poachers may have come in. Um, they're completely unarmed, um, as you said. They are, you know, they were the first um, all-female anti-poaching unit um, within Africa. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, so they are the front line. The best analogy of them is the the old-fashioned Bobby on the beat, if you like. Um, 
So their role is is as much about being in the community and, and spreading the word as it is about being that frontline presence and doing the 20 kilometer fence checks each day. Um, and But they are form a part of the anti-poaching unit. So if they see signs of insurgent, then they'll radio in to the armed patrol unit to come and back them up. Um, because there's a potential, obviously, there could be armed poachers on, on you know, within the vicinity. Um, and they've had a phenomenal success rate. You know, they've actually reduced poaching. You know, so when we talk about poaching, we obviously we talk about rhino poaching a lot, but there's a lot of what we call bushmeat poaching, which is people coming in and, and, and poaching, um, you know, the, the various different antelopes for, for, various, for bushmeat. Um, so they've reduced that level of poaching generally by 63% within their area of operation. Um, they started Amazing. off as a team of six women and there's now 42. So their area of operation has grown um, phenomenally in terms of the area they're protecting. So like I was talking with Olpegeta, they're another huge success story. And, and what we're working with them, and you know, I'll be spending some time out there at the end of the month with them to, to look at is how do we take this successful model and how do we look at implementing it elsewhere will that um infer onto rhinocation as well in terms of getting people um into this unit um it's the rhinocation bit not not so much getting them into the unit i think right. you know, with the members we have to really you know we, we we have to really understand you know how what, what's made it the success that it is and, and we talked about it within our seven series one of them being research we've actually just been conducting some socio-economic research within the local communities to, to really understand the impact that the members are having within the, within those local communities um, because it is giving job opportunities to uh, you know to, to women which traditionally hasn't hasn't been there but um but, but so, but that comes back to looking at how what's made it successful and how do we replicate it? Because, you know, in the time where we've spoken a lot today around, you know, the the, the, the terrible side of poaching and what it's doing and how it's driven, you know, rhinos to the, the brink of extinction, if you like. But but actually, there are some some very positive messages out there. And what we need to do collectively as a as a conservation area of, of work is is understanding what's working today and understanding how we how we make that um, spread further and, and replicate it. Um, and why do you think the Black Mumbers have been so successful? Um, so, you know, when you look at, you know, they, they, they seem to be, the, the women seem to be a lot more dedicated to, to the role than perhaps the men. Right. Um, you would take from those local communities. They're incredibly passionate about it. They, you know, they take back, they, they, a lot of what they do is you, you may have heard the term snares in the past, which is essentially like a wire ring that an animal will put a foot or a neck or something in. And mm. as it pulls away, this thing tightens around the foot or the, or, or the neck and, you know, just basically is like, it's like a garrote almost. And, and it, you know, it's, it's a horrible thing to see. Yeah. Um, so a lot of what they do is, you know, and these snares are, are, are the bushmeat snares, you know, so they, they might set them out, but any animal can walk through it. So, they, you know, so a lot of what they do is, is as well as checking the fences, is they'll do these, these um, snare patrols and they'll look and pick up, you know, they're phenomenal amounts, you know, we out there, they call them backies. We, what we would call a pickup truck back mm. full of these wire snares. Um, so, you know, and, and, yeah, and so they have that, they just have a level of commitment to, to, to their job, if you like, that perhaps we haven't seen elsewhere, um, because it's a Bobby on the beat approach, you know, links back to the local community. They seem to be better at being able to engage within 
within their communities. We've certainly seen in some of the communities, we're seeing a trend where people are wanting to grow up to be a black member, whereas perhaps previously they may have even wanted to grow up to be a poacher. Um, so you know, the impact, not just on the immediate day-to-day, -day, but the impacts within the communities is, is, is fantastic. It's outstanding. Um, and these, these black members, they're the, on the front line of the conservation efforts, really, or the protection efforts. Um, but how do they walk that fine line between protecting a rhino and not being too intrusive on the animal at the same time? So, so because they're walking a, 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 along the fence line, so they're not they're not tracking out to, to find a rhino. Okay. Um, you know, so so their their job isn't actually out looking for rhinos. Right. They're, they're looking for signs of insurgents within the, the the area of operation. So, um, you, you know, if you talk to some of these ladies, they'll actually be a, a equally or as more afraid of coming across some of the wildlife: rhinos, elephants, lions, and perhaps the poachers. So to get that, just to clarify, so the black mumbers would be on the perimeter of the kind of essentially the conservation zone. But will there be, will there be the kind of the more um, frontline efforts? Will they be kind of behind the rhino? Will they be tracking them? Or how much of a distance do they actually keep? It depends in different different areas. So within the areas where the mammoths operate, there is a separate you know unit that will go out to try and get a visual, and they can do that in a car, in a vehicle. Um, you know, sometimes you, you might go on foot, but you would try and get visuals, um, visuals of the rhinos, and 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 you'd, you know they will have different ways of identifying individual rhinos. Um, so you're you're always trying to to see it, to see and identify which, which ones you've seen most often. Some of them will have satellite transmitters on, so you can actually track them as well. So you sometimes don't even necessarily need to see the rhino itself. You just need to be able to understand the technology to prove whether the rhino is moving or not. And if it's moving and you're in the area, you know, you can almost tick the box that it's still alive. Okay, sorry. In my head, I had this old school thought of <laughs> being four hundred meters away at all times. Um, uh, but no, I have seen people trying to do that, but it's, it's not that level of protection. That's not feasible in the type of areas. I mean, if you take Kruger National Park, which the Black Mambas operate within the the west, the, the, the reserves on the western border. I mean, Kruger National Park is the size of Wales. So oh, you right. can imagine trying to trying to you couldn't track individual rhinos and follow them around the whole time. Oh, okay, that, that makes sense. Um, let's come on to some of the other projects you're involved in. And you have uh, an orphanage called Zululand Orphanage. Um, how did this begin? How did this start? So, so yeah, so the Zululand Rhino Orphanage is, has a sad story as to how it started, actually. So we worked with a, another orphanage previously within the, the KwaZulu-Natal area, which is kind of um, sort of on the East Coast Durban way of South Africa, for, for anyone who knows that. Um, so we were working with another rhino orphanage, um, and unfortunately, the, the orphanage we were working with previously, which at the time was the only dedicated rhino orphanage within that, that KwaZulu-Natal, um, that, that was attacked by poachers one night. Oh. Um, so they, they actually killed two of the rhinos that were about a week away from being um, sent back out as the, the next phase of their, their release back into the wild. And they held up, beat up, and assaulted the staff that were there. So it was a terrible, oh God. terrible, and that was in that happened in February last year. Um, so yeah, a terrible night, a terrible incident, and and basically the decision was taken that we would close that facility, um, and a, a, as a dedicated rhino orphanage. Which, but we still had the remaining rhinos, and in fact, hippo had to um, had to find a new home. So we 
we, with our partner on the ground, we helped to fund the setup of, um, of this new facility in a, in a different area, but still within KwaZulu Natal. Um, and within three months, we managed to get facilities that would allow us to, to move the rhinos there. So that's what we did. Um, and, and actually, the, the, it's an incredible place. The people are in, so dedicated. Um, people often see pictures of people, the carers of rhino orphans, you know, where a rhino will need to come and rest its head on your lap because you have to sit with it because a rhino calf will have a constant contact with its mother. So when it's very small and it's been through that trauma, um, it will need that, it needs that physical connection and attention. Um, oh. But what you don't see is the fact that, you know, even a month old rhino and it headbutts you, it, it really does hurt. Um, <laughs> yes, and, and that these carers have to feed these rhinos every two hours, 24 hours a day. Um, so sleep is definitely not something that you get a lot of when, when a new rhino orphan comes in. So from the pictures you see, it might look like the best job in the world. There are certainly a lot of downsides to it. Uh, but incredibly rewarding when, as just has happened, um, we've just sent two of our black rhinos and released them back out into the wild, um, which, again, is a, a phased approach. But, um, but it's incredibly rewarding when you've seen them come in at such small cars. I remember one of these black rhinos leaving it when it was at the old facility and it was really very sick and thinking it, it's never going to survive and I'll, I'll never see it again and here he is three years old and released back into the wild so that's incredibly rewarding it's a huge achievement and how many orphan rhinos do does zululand orphanage currently have so i can't i won't tell you exactly because from, mm. from a security perspective oh, right, minute, okay, yeah. it's, a, it's around about 10 at the moment um and and um and, and a couple of hippos as well Oh, that's cool. Um, so, um, and yeah, so, so it's very good. And in fact, you know, one of the things we do as an organization that I mentioned before, how do we work? You know, we try and work more as a partnership with our, the people we work with on the ground. So rather than just giving them funding, we get involved, uh, you know, even to, at a management level, um, particularly from, from some of that funding. So we run all of their adoption schemes. So you can go and adopt these rhinos and then all of the money from that we generate out back to the orphanage. So it's very much a print of an approach of people playing to their strengths. You know, they're, they typically are trying to look after baby orphans or in the case of the black members, they're trying to you know, walk up and down the fence patrols. Their, their strength is not really the admin and the sending certificates and fact sheets out to people that want to adopt, but that is a good generate, a re good revenue generator. So what we said to them was let us take that on and we'll run, we'll run all of that for you because that's what we can do from, inter you know, we can do that from sitting in a computer in the UK. Mm -hmm. And that frees up more of their time to do what they're good at, which is the, the being in the field. Okay, so a rhino comes into their care, uh, but how long does it typically take for a rhino to be released back into the wild? Um, you, you really need to look between two, two and a half to three years. Okay, and as you say... To leave its mum in a in natural environment. Oh, right. And then, as you're saying, because you're there with Wakazi, would you naturally see a time when it, you would all agree that it was, it was right to release them into the wild because of their, let's say, their nature is coming out a little bit more? It, there's, there's different things. So, you know, the, the goal of the orphanage is to release every, everyone back mm. to the wild. That's why, you know, we, we're, not, we're not trying to create orphans to create a captive population in Africa. We want to get them back out into the wild. Yes. So, so we look at them as a... As a you know, so how do we think they're ready? As you say, from a from a personality perspective, from their you know development perspective, let's say from them as an individual, um, well, we then need to look at where you release them because 
you know, they've not grown up with their mum, so you know, they'll still be fairly small rhinos, especially if there's a male. You need to understand what other males are in the territory because that could prove fatal for the young one. Um, you need to look at what's the weather conditions been like, in other words, and, and what's that driven from a habitat. So, in other words, is there enough food, natural food, for them to be releasing into the wild at the minute, or do we need to wait for the rains to come so that the, the, the you know, the grass or the, or the browse continues to grow? So there's lots of different aspects that we take into consideration as to where's the right time and where's the right place to release them to. That's so multifaceted approach to it, I didn't realise. Um, but you've got a diff- you've got another project as well, called, which is Old Pajetta. Um, what's the difference in the two projects? So, so the Zululand Rhine Orphanage is in is in South Africa. Old Pejeta is a is a more of a conservancy, a, a overall conservancy, and that's in Kenya. So I mentioned it a, a few times. Mm. So. Um, again, phenomenal success story. They were home to the last three and now the last two northern white rhinos in the world. Um, there's two species of white rhino, the southern white rhino, which is the most numerous. There's about 19 to 20,000, and then there's now just two northern white rhinos. Um, but, but really, the biggest conservation success story Alpegeta's had is that they are now the, the, the biggest. Um, black rhino sanctuary within the whole of East Africa. So from an initial population of just four rhinos, they now have 120. And our issue with, with that is we've actually running out of space for those. So we're now working hard on bringing in new land to, to add on to the conservancy so we can continue that successful breeding program. For you, Simon, with all the efforts of helping rhinos, what has been your biggest achievement? Or the team's biggest achievement, sorry. So a uh, team's biggest achievement, I think, is is having the impact that we're able to have working with our partners. Um, you know, so so that's you know that's what we're here for. We're here to to help protect and and, and save the species of, of rhino. Um, so we've had some, as I mentioned earlier, some great achievements in terms of the amount of fundraising that we've been able to do and the amount of funding that we've brought in. Um, mm. But but we've only been. But the reason we're doing that is to drive what we're able to do. Drive so, so to be able to play a part in securing the additional land that's needed for for old pejeta, to to be able to play a part in allowing rhinos to be released back into the wild, and um, you know being a part of seeing the expansion of the black mammas from six to forty two um, women. Um, I think that's mm. to be a part of that and to be. A, to be to know that you've helped that become achievable is 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 a great success. And as you say, there's a huge um, social achievement as well to that to that organisation. Yeah. Um, but with yeah. uh, great achievement comes great teams. And how big is your organisation in the UK now? So um, so we now have um, three paid staff um, and then a team of volunteers who incredibly dedicated. They're almost like unpaid professionals rather than volunteers. Mm. Um, so in total, we have now um, probably about seven or eight people working, you know, regularly um, supporting the work that we're doing. And I say regularly, you know, it's not necessarily seven hours a day, but, but working um, all the, at least sometime during the week. Um, so, yeah, and then on top of that, we have a team of volunteers that come and help us at events and such like. So anything up to 10 to 15 on top of that. And, and for people like me and listeners at home, how can we get involved in helping rhinos? Um, so th- there's all sorts of different ways, really. Um, you know, often when often when I ask that question, or pe- people expect the first thing to come back and saying, you know, donate and give money. But, but the first thing I would say is, 
we, we use the phrase share share your passion. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so we're on social media. Come and join us. Come and join the seventy five thousand followers we have across Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and you know, you'll keep up to date with stuff and you know, and help share help us get the message out there to to an even wider audience. Um, I mentioned adoptions earlier. There's things you can do that you know come in and adopting them. One of the last two northern white rhinos in the world. You can adopt an anti-poaching dog. You can adopt one of the orphans, and you can sponsor one of the black mammoths. We, we call it sponsor rather than adopt because these are grown ladies. We didn't feel like adopt was quite right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and all of that money goes directly back into the, um, back back into those projects. Um, you know, there's fundraising initiatives that people can do. Um, we had one guy who actually cycled from the tip of Africa to the, the top tip to the bottom tip of Africa. Um, took him Jesus. three months and, and raised a load of money. People had done skydives, people had doing abseiling for buildings. We got someone this weekend doing a cake sale at a local cafe. Um, so all sorts of different things that they can do that, that helps raise raise funds for us. Um, and, and I guess I'll get a, a little plug in there, which is you know we have a big event with partnership with Old Pegeter in London. Um, mm-hmm. And the next one was is somewhere away yet, but it's April the fourth um, next year. Um, we actually have bringing over from Kenya one of the, the caregivers, one of the people responsible for looking after the northern white rhinos. So, um, and we're going to hear a lot about sci- how science is, is helping drive the future of conservation. Um, so we're very excited about that. Um, and yeah, so that will be at the Royal Geographic Society in London uh, on Thursday, the 4th of April. So come and join us there and hear, hear a lot more small firsthand and, and help directly contribute then to to the work and the expansion of the Black Rhino breeding program. Amazing. Um, visit visit our website. There's a lot more information on the website and a lot more yeah, ideas of how you can help there. That's great. And um, you currently have a campaign running called um, Eyes on Rhinos. Uh, what is this campaign uh, raising awareness of specifically? Sorry. So it's just yeah, giving the idea that actually you know there's there's many different elements to you know to keeping eyes on rhinos you know whether it's dogs it's helicopters so it's just helping people understand you know a lot of what we've been talking about today trying to trying to summarize it in a nutshell within a campaign if you like um, the, the multifaceted approach that is wildlife conservation and specifically rhino conservation. Um, so, so and trying to break it down, and we just tried to put a bit of fun in there, calling it "Eyes on Rhinos" to to, to look at the different ways of, of approaching it. Yeah, and you say there's a lot of equipment involved in um, in keeping what sometimes needs to be a, like a distant eye on a rhino. What equipment is involved in keeping rhinos safe? Um, so, increasing a lot of technology. There's satellite tracking um, equipment. There's yeah, helicopters or, or sometimes fixed wings, small planes. Um, drones are, are used quite a bit as well now. Mm. Um, heat-seeking cameras. Um, you've obviously got, you know, from a from an anti-poaching perspective, you've got the firearms equipment that's needed. So, so there's a lot of, you know, using, unfortunately, the poaching syndicates are, are using all the latest technology and we have to keep one step ahead um, and, and understand what's out there. And, and and the various different bits of technology that we need. And some of it's not like technology. You know, anti-poaching dogs are relatively new in the last few years and proving to be very successful as well. So I wouldn't call the dogs a bit of technology, but they're a, a key part of that eyes on rhinos. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm aware you've also got another campaign starting soon. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on this? We have. So, so stay tuned. Um, so... Mm. 
the 22nd of September is World Rhino Day, um, and it's going to be a build up to that. And for World Rhino Day itself, we'll launch our, our latest hashtag campaign, which is um, hashtag Help a Rhino. Um, and the idea being, I mean, it kind of says it all, and it's fairly obvious and it's simple. Um, but you know, social media has become a big, a big tool, if you like, for getting awareness out there. So, mm. so using the hashtags and and that sort of making it very simple for people to just saying help a rhino. Um, hopefully we're going to see lots of pictures of people out there. You'll actually be able to download some some coloring sheets of rhinos, which will just have hashtag help a rhino on it. You'll actually be able yep. to print off a picture of a rhino that says hashtag help a rhino. What we're asking ask people to do is actually take photographs of themselves posing in their everyday life, showing that actually, you know, you don't need to give up your whole life. You can do something even if you're sitting at an office, take a picture of you holding one of these pictures, post it on social media and with the hashtag on there and you're starting to spread the word. So we're, we're quite excited about that, that getting out there for the head of World Rhino Day. Definitely, I'll be joining in on that as well. But summer's now coming to a close and we're looking at the end of 2018, but we've said a little bit about what's coming up in 2019 for you, but um, in a more expanded sense, what does 2019 bring for yourself and for helping rhinos? Um, so, so from from a helping rhinos perspective, you know, 2019 will be our next year of of evolution in terms of, of um, in terms of what, uh, where we go from an organisation. So we need to bring in more funding to allow us to to do things that we've been talking about for the last um, sort of hour, hour and a half or so. Um, um, so so. Uh, we want to we want to expand and build on those successful projects that I've spoken about. So you know, how do we take the Black Mamba concept and roll it out elsewhere? How do we take the successful Black Rhino breeding program at Old Pegeter and, and make sure that we have the, the facilities to continue it? So for 2019, that's 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 key. You know, we need to start looking at those positives and and using the positives to overcome the negatives that we've got out there. Um, rather than just keep looking at the poaching statistics and, and trying to you know, do the same thing. So for us, you know, we're using a little line at the moment that says it, it's time to change the way we think about wildlife conservation. Um, so that's very much what our focus will be on 2019 is, is looking at how do we do things differently because if we keep doing things exactly the same, we'll keep getting the same results. Um, and, and as I said, part of that is what, what's working well, how do we replicate it, how do we, how do we repeat it, um, how do we look to engage people in that and bring more people on board and, and get more people to support the work that we're doing? And um, finally, Simon, I know you've already said it, but one more time, how do people find out more about helping rhinos and keep up to date? So, yeah, so follow us on our social media. We're, it's very simple. We're just at Helping Rhinos across all of the platforms. Um, visit our website, which is helpingrhinos.org. Um, there's lots of information on there, lots of ways that you can find out how you can help. Um, and and lots of you know is even part of that is understanding you know more around rhinos and the concept how we how we're conserving rhinos. So visit our website, follow us on social media. We have got some other exciting stuff coming up um, within the next sort of three or four months as well that we I, I can't go into now, but um, mm. some exciting concepts we've got that we think will really help to make a difference as well. So. Stay tuned to all of all of our social media and website, and and hopefully you'll be as excited as we are when that when that all is announced. That's great. I'll be keeping a keen eye on it. Simon Jones, thank you so much for being on the show and for being so open. Um, yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you. 
And that's it. Thank you again to my guest Simon Jones for being on the show. Um, I commend wholeheartedly the work both him and all the Helping Rhinos teams are doing. And a message here, and a message to stress here to you, the listener at home, and to myself, because uh, I feel it's all too easy to passively take on this information. And I've definitely been guilty in the past of hearing the numbers and the figures and going, oh yeah, I'll get round to that, you know. And, and when it's a cause that doesn't directly affect you, it's easy for life just to get in the way and you don't get round to it, you know? But this issue is having a huge consequence on lives that don't have a voice and can't fairly defend themselves from us. You know, it's time for us to recognise the impact we are having, not only in the communities close to the direct impact on these animals, but in the blind eye we turn to it in other parts of the world. I say this podcast is a way of communicating social change. And I hope this show goes in some small way to help in spreading the word and getting people to donate, as I will be right after this. So again, thank you Simon Jones for being on the show. And thank you listeners for tuning in. I do really appreciate your support. And if you want to stay up to date and get in touch with myself, I can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and now Pinterest. Uh, Just search for Rooftop Casual. Anyway, take care. Bye-bye.